The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Okay, we are right now 26 weeks into the book of John. And I, I share the updates with you every week on where we're at in John because... I just want to say good job. We've made it. 26 weeks in. Um, we have uh, a little ways more to go. We're doing 42 weeks in John. And, and I want to rem- remind you why we are taking this long with the book of John. And the reason is that we want to walk the pace of Jesus. We didn't want to just create a, a eight-week sermon series that plowed through John and and got some like a highlight reel like we really want to see what Jesus is doing and join him there and maybe it's slowing the pace of your heart a little bit maybe it's finding time to finally like breathe maybe we're 26 weeks in and you're like okay I think I'm ready for this (laughs) and we're just going to keep walking with him through this, what we're, we're starting into this week is what's known as um, Jesus' final address. And so um, the first 12 chapters of John have, have spanned over about three years. And then the last, uh, from 13, then all the way to the end of the book, it literally is like a couple days. Okay, so, so we're just going to all slow down together and enter into um, the last days of Jesus and uh, and hear his heart and see how much he loves. Um, seeing Jesus' people, unfortunately, is not always the same as seeing Jesus. Um, Barna Research Group, a couple of years ago, called a lot of you thousands of people who are, are young, um, I guess his teens all the way to about 35 because one of the quotes comes from a 34-year-old. And, uh, and they asked them, these are people outside the church, they asked them, what are three words that come to mind? What are the top three words that come to mind when you think about Christianity? And, <clears throat> and I'm sure you can start anticipating some of them, but I want to I read these words as we enter into our time together of watching Jesus. The first word, 91% responded with this, um, anti-homosexual. And the quote that came with that, one of the people said this, many people in the gay community don't seem to have issues with Jesus, but rather with those claiming to represent him today. It's an us versus them mentality as if a war has been declared. The second word, 87% responded with the word judgmental. And the quote with that was by a guy named Jeff, age 25. Christians talk about hating sin and loving sinners. But the way they go about things, they might as well call it what it is. They hate the sin and the sinner. 85% responded with with the word hypocritical. This is the quote from Victoria, age 24, and it really a powerful story in a very few words. She says, everyone in church gave me advice about how to raise my son, but a lot of the time they seem to be reminding me that I have no husband. 
And besides, most of them were not following their own advice. It's hard to care about what they say. They're not practicing what they preach. So as I, as I read those things, and those are hard to hear, I know that our response, whether we want to respond this way or not, is, is reasons or defenses. But what I want to point out with these words is that all of them speak to what we are against, not what we are for. They speak to what we oppose, not what we praise. And I think that is very, very telling, especially when we come to the book of John and this chapter, and, and the heart of this comes out in John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know. I was thinking about starting the sermon this way, by just looking out and saying, everyone knows. (laughs) And maybe even like, no. (laughs) Because... Because there is a reality to that, that everyone knows you, (laughs) everyone knows me, everyone knows quirky little things about me just because I preach every other week, everyone knows. And so that's that's what we're going to talk about today. What, What would it look like for Christians to look like Jesus? What would it look like for Christians to be known by their likeness to Jesus and John 13 helps us. Um, so the big question today is, what does everyone know about you? Um, so enter with me into John 13, starting in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through this. And so as we read, uh, this is going to be about seven minutes of reading, maybe less than that. It's a whole chapter. What I want is you just let the word sink in. Okay, this is the word of God. Honor it with me. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm going to do, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked. 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no one is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know all these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And that's so cool. It's just this uh, reminder of Exodus 3 where God comes to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses says, how will they know who you are? And, And God says, well, tell them I am who I am. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought he was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. He was gone, Jesus said. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And may God add his blessing to the word as we hear it and respond to it. I want to give you a context here for the passages. Um, Right as we enter into verse 1, we get the occasion for why they have gathered. It says it was just before the Passover festival. And the neat thing going 26 weeks through the book of John is that... We have already walked through two Passovers with Jesus. But before we even went through those two Passovers, we have Jesus naming himself, or those who see Jesus naming him as the Passover lamb. If you remember all the way back to the beginning, this was probably week two, 
And John 1, 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, look, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36, again they say, look, the Lamb of God. The only context, I remember preaching this sermon, the only context they would have had for a lamb to take away sin would have been the Passover. That a lamb was slaughtered and the blood put on the doorpost so that God would pass over his people. And they, they remembered that. And so when Jesus was identified as that, they said Jesus now would be that lamb who would come and who would take the sin of the world away. The other two Passovers we experienced had some pretty incredible stories. If you remember back to John 2, and Jesus, remember, he comes in the temple and he starts like, this is like this church. Imagine like someone walks in and they just start throwing chairs and tables around. Right? Uh, that was Jesus in John 2. And so he throws it all over and then he says, I will destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. That was his first Passover we shared with Jesus. It wasn't memorable, right? <laughs> the second one was when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. John 6. Feeds 5,000 people, and over 5,000, right? Because that was just men they were counting with 5,000. Sorry, ladies. It was probably a lot more than that. You probably were present. Um, so we have a lot of people. Jesus is feeding, and they love it. Because Jesus is giving everyone food. And then Jesus says, I tell you what, my body is the real food. My blood is the real drink. You can have no part in me unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And, and what did they do? They all left him. That was Passover too, right? So first Passover, he's thrown over the table. Second Passover, everyone leaves him. And he says to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And his disciples say, what? We're, well, we already sold everything. Like, we don't really have anywhere else to go. So I guess we're just in it. Uh, Okay, and so, so this third Passover is different because the first two he shared with crowds and the third one, it's this very intimate gathering of Jesus and his disciples. Twelve guys and Jesus. And I want you to, to have an understanding of what, what this looks like. What this looks like probably is not too different than your Thanksgiving, your family Thanksgivings together. Like, I know this might be a dark place for some of you to enter into, but I just want you to, like, think about what Thanksgiving looks like for your family. Okay, if it's, it's too painful of a memory, just come back out. Just, we're safe. We're here. Okay? But, but even for the families who that, that is uh, time to be looked forward to, Having that many people together, there's issues, okay? So my issue, and my mom doesn't know this, and she's going to find this out because she's right here in front of me, um, is that yeah, we're all ready. For, are you guys ready for this? We're just going to work this out in front of you all. Uh, uh, yeah, my dad's is comforting here. Is that, is that dinner happens at usually 2.30, Okay, that's not dinner, but that's also not lunch, which means I'm like twitchy hungry by the time we eat. And when you're twitchy hungry, what that means is that you're grumpy also. And so people are like, what are you thankful for? And you're like, 
I can't think of anything, right? You're just, you're just not ready to engage. <laughs> and so, so no, matter, no matter what the scenario is here, um, when you have that many people together, there, there are issues. And, and, and also, what they have here is this is a traditional meal they're sharing. Ever since these guys were, were, could remember eating solid food, they were celebrating the Passover together. So do you guys know, you know, Christmas time, when, when you, like, feeling profound, you, like, you have that profound moment, and you go, you know what, I just, this year, I just want to remember, like, the true meaning of Christmas. And what that means is, like, you're going to do what you do every other year, which is, like, you just show up, and then, and then probably not really engage as much as you'd like to with the true meaning of Christmas. And what I mean by that is, like, Think about when you get together, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and you sit at a table, and that time is precious. That time is so valuable. The people you are with are important. But think of how hard it can be to stay there, not to rush off, not to be busy, not to pull out your phone and text, not to engage with something that really is meaningless and trivial. And that same thing was happening here. The Passover, when God, by a mighty hand, took the children of Israel out of Egypt, and that is what they're celebrating. But you know what it sounded like? Hey, Thomas, pass the gravy. Right? Peter, you overcooked the chicken. Right? Like, that's, that's what it sounded like. There was, there was probably, like, squabbling. And we know that because in Luke, it says, after this happens, they start arguing over who's the greatest. Right? So that's the, that's the culture of this meal, right? They're in a bad spot, and they really don't get what's going on. But, but Jesus, we know what's going on in his heart. There's three things here at the beginning that we see happening in, in Jesus' heart, and the disciples are completely unaware of. It's incredible. What's going on in Jesus' heart is this. Verse 1, so the Passover festival says, Jesus knew. We're going to come back to that, but I want you to look down to verse 3. It says, Jesus knew again. What, what that means is it's giving us this window into what's going on in the heart of Jesus. So the first thing Jesus knows is what? That the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. So Jesus' his whole life was lived in the context, the anticipation of when he would be that lamb that would lay down his life for the sin of all people. And when we've heard about four times throughout this book, it's not my time. It's not my time. Last chapter, chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came. Father, glorify your name. And Jesus knew that it was time. And so Jesus is carrying this reality in his heart that he would soon give his life for all people. And he is carrying that reality while he, he's just letting everything else go on around him. No one cares. All, all they care about is how good the bread tastes, their own expectations. They've come into it all the same again. And Jesus is carrying. The second thing we know Jesus is carrying with him in, in verse 3 is amazing. It says, Jesus knew that the Father... Track with me here. The Father had put all, put all things under his power. 
What that means here is that more power than our minds can comprehend is under the authority and and mastery of Jesus. What would you do? I don't know if you ever played this game with your friends. It's like, hey, if you had a genie, what would you wish for? Right? And usually you're like, uh, you know, I don't know, like, I could have a buffet at my kitchen every day. You know, like, like we, that's what we think of. But Jesus, I want you to see how he's responding with literally all power and all authority on heaven and earth is his. And what does he choose to do with that? It's incredible. Because the third thing he realizes is that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So Jesus was certain of his identity. I want, I want you just to listen to the start of John 1 here. John 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God He was with God in the beginning. Listen to this. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing would exist. And that is who he is and who he knows he is. Everything. Everything is under him. And so how does he respond? So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothes, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. This is, this is amazing. The way it describes it here in verse 1 is amazing. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And that's the, so the first fill in the blank, if you're following the notes, is this, that Jesus loved all the way. See, what I mean by this is that the context that we get here of Jesus knowing the time, Jesus knowing all power was his, Jesus knowing that, that he was returning to the Father, is that, that this, before the worlds were created, Jesus loved The world's being created was an act of love. Jesus' coming was an act of love. And that loving didn't stop. Because I want you to put this in the context of our Thanksgiving meals. Like we maybe go around and share what we're thankful for, and our hearts disengage so quickly. We end so quickly, but the love of God does not end. When you get distracted and you forget God, God's love does not end. He loved his own till the very end, right? He's in it. That's amazing. I think I, what maybe shocks me so much is how quickly my heart disengages with what is most good. I just get distracted. And the way that Jesus showed his deep investment, deeper than you will ever go, his deep investment is this, that what he did with all his power and all his authority was that he did what no one would even think about doing and he 
became a slave of all. He washed their feet. Okay, feet washing. Let's, let's get into that really quick. I, I know for some of you this is going to be a really uncomfortable part of the sermon, so I just, I'm sorry. But, but there are a couple ways to feet wash. Um, one, I know, just saying feet, some of you guys are like vomiting in your mouth. I'm sorry. Um, you can feet wash by simply like pouring some water on it and like as quickly as you can throwing the, the towel on it, right? Because you're like, okay, whew, right? And, and, and that is sort of what, the way it works a lot of times now. You'll have like tr- church traditions, like the Church of England, like they have a tradition of like when the sermon is preached once a year, like the, the bishop will come down and he'll wash someone's feet symbolically. But there's another way to wash feet. And that's like in between the toes. Okay? I know we all all just went to the same place together. Okay? Um, When I was leading a college ministry, part of the college ministry in Pullman, um, I preached on this passage. And I decided to wash someone's feet. And I didn't tell them. So I want you to picture this. I chose someone to, I'm not going to wash anyone's feet today, <laughs> be at ease. So I, I, I um, picked a young a man named Jamin, and he was, he was tr- the truly agrarian sort. He, um, Jamin, I did not factor in that he always wore like farm boots that were laced up really high. So, so when I said, um, I'm going to wash someone's feet, Jamin, can I wash your feet? Jamin just was the, the most tender-hearted guy, and so, so he was like, yeah. And so I, I walked down with, <laughs> with like a bottle of water and a towel, and I started unlacing his shoes, and everyone, there's a couple, there, not a couple, there's probably a hundred people there, and, and they all just, they're leaning over, and there was so much of this that I had not planned out, and I realized as I was unlacing his shoes, and I took it off, and I realized, like, either I, like, just sprinkle the water on, or I, like, really start rubbing the feet and wash his feet. And I'm not going to go into details, but I, I wash his feet. But the interesting thing is, is that even with that, what made it better is I still had power. And as I, as I thought through this story, I thought, I have no idea what it means to relate with Jesus here because he gave up power. Like in the context of me washing Jamin's feet, honestly, it, it was still a, a matter of authority for me. It wasn't a matter of, of like service. Like I, I did not know how to humble my heart and submit my heart to the extent that Jesus was doing it. And the Barna research um, they wrote this, and I, and I wanted to share this here because there's a word that that really like such a hard time moving past. And this is what they said: the primary reason outsiders feel hostile towards Christians is not because of any specific theological perspective. What they react negatively to is our swagger how we go about things, and the, listen to this, the sense of self-importance we project. It's not a theological issue all the time. It's a, it's a swagger. It's the idea of self-importance that we have and we carry ourselves with. 
that isn't this, that isn't, isn't Jesus. If you look with me at Philippians 2, there's a beautiful passage here in Philippians 2. Um, it says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, basically what that's saying is like, if, if Jesus means anything to you, it seems like it's very simple. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself. Other ways this can be translated is think of others as more important than you. How many arguments would that just stop? If, if the other person we just thought of is being better than us. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And we're just going to read through verse 8 here. It keeps going, but, but I think it really is summed up here. In your relationship to one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And, and literally what it's saying there is he made himself a zero. It's like he, he, he emptied himself. There's been so much written on this because we're, and I think so much because we're fascinated. How could Jesus, who had all power and all authority, on heaven and earth, do this if I am so insignificant and I can't even imagine doing that. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus loved all the way. And, and pulling us back to the context within which he is loving, this is not an easy time to love. If you're following in your notes, this, the second fill in the blank is this, that, that Jesus loved through betrayal and denial. So the, the introduction we have to the disciples here uh, doesn't paint um, a, a very easy group, not a very lovable group. Right, we've got Judas and we have Peter. These are kind of the guys that stick out in this passage. And we have Judas who Jesus knows is going to betray him. In verse 2 it says, Even while the meal is in progress, the devil has already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And Jesus is aware of this. And so in verse 21 it says, And after he had said these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. But what he does in response to that is he dips bread into the dipping sauce <laughs> they dipped it in, and he hands it to Judas. And, and that act, every, everything you read on this says that that act is an act of friendship. It's not an act of Jesus betraying Judas, but it's an act of Jesus sending friendship to Judas. This is how he loves to the very end. Peter... Right, let's look at Peter for a second. P- 
Peter, we have him kind of outraged and not willing to have his feet washed. But later on, you get this. At the very end, Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus' response to him is this. Will you really lay down your life? Will you, really, you know what you're going to do, Peter? You're going to betray me. See, the amazing thing about Jesus here is that his humility and love is not coming from ignorance, but an acknowledgement of what our real need is, and he's loving into that. As how many of us have been like Peter and said, at the very end here, I will lay down my life for you. What that has looked like for me oftentimes is, is I, have like, I have persistent sins in my life. I do. And these things, oftentimes I come to God and I say, never again. I'm, I'm never going to, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of the way it hurts me. I'm tired of the way it hurts others. I'm tired of the way it hurts you. I'm never going to do that again. And you know what Jesus says? He says, will you really? Are you really never going to do it again? Jesus is being more honest with Peter than Peter will be honest about himself. And what he's making an opportunity for you to do is be more honest with yourself than you're willing to be. When you say, I will never, Jesus goes, I love you more than that dishonesty. Like You're going to hurt me again. You're going to betray me. There's betrayal in your heart. But I love you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus loved into the betrayal and loved into the dishonesty. But think of the things that betray us and the things that take our love away so quickly. Why is that? And so, so how does Jesus respond to those? What is Jesus' instruction for, for Judas's and Peter's and us? And it is amazing because this is what he does. He commands us to love. Instead of going, you helpless bunch, you hopeless bunch, this is what he does. In verse 34 and 35, he says, a new command I give you. And so the third point is this. Jesus commands where Christians are commanded to love like Jesus. And so the question for us is, how is it, Jesus, if you know I'm a betrayer, if you know that's me over and over again, how can you, how can you command me to love you? To love you, and the word here is agape, to love you like God would love. How can you possibly do that? And, and the, the reason is this. So a new command I give you, and literally the word new there can also be translated um, fresh. And, and what, what he's getting at here is, <clears throat> if you ever if you have a, a child who, who has a, a toy, like a toy doll, and they play with it so much, it just gets ratty and tattered up. And, and so the parent takes it and gives an exact replica of it the exact likeness of it. It's renewed, it's made fresh, it's made whole again. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is a new command I'm giving you, not new in that it's never happened before, but, but that love that has been so persistent from the heart of God to you over the years, it's just got beaten up. 
And so that love he's calling, has called you to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all those years of betrayal that you see throughout the Old New Testament, Jesus is going, it's being refreshed, and it's refreshed in me. As I, here we go, he says, as I have loved you. See, it's being refreshed in Jesus. As I have loved you, so now you must love. So we're not, we're not commanded to do this by our own strength, but we're commanded to do it through him. As I have loved you, so you now go love. Right? By this, everyone will know that you're disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know. And I really think that the start is that, that honesty with ourselves. Um, in college, I, had a, um, I was in a relationship, and I remember sitting down with this older couple, and they asked us a question. They said, uh, so, you know, you guys have been dating for a little bit. What are your, like, what idiosyncrasies do you have? And I remember being so defensive. <laughs> I was like, I don't have idiosyncrasies. What are you talking <laughs> Please. Right? And, and what, I was, what I was getting defensive about is, like, I wanted to protect myself, my, myself from, from people thinking of me as I am. Really? And, and that's the way we do it. We get so defensive. And I, I am just going to speak so personally. I, I have a very defensive nature. Something that's been brought up to me over the years. And, and I don't know what to do with it. Like, like if someone brings up something to me and they're like, Daniel, I see this in you. Everything in me wants to defend myself. And I'll tell you what, if you do that to me and I'm like, oh, thank you. Really on the inside, I'm like, well, let me tell you what, right? Like that's, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, let's go at it. Like, well, let me see what I see in you. You know, like, like that's, that's what we do. <laughs> By this, everyone will know. Everyone will know. And, and the, the crazy thing is, guys, everyone knows. People around us, like you guys know some funny things about me because you see me every week every other week, preach. Um, the people who are close to me know some things about me that aren't pretty. Aren't pretty at all. And they know me. And, <clears throat> and so the question is, how can we be called to love? And, and the way Jesus can call us to love is because the way he makes us ready to love, and it is through the washing of feet, and so the last point is simply this. The first step towards loving like Jesus is having your feet washed by Jesus. I think Peter, I relate a lot with Peter here. Because um, when Jesus comes and humbles himself below Peter, here's the God. All power and all authority has been given to him. And he, and he goes below Peter. And Peter's response is this. No, you will Never wash my feet. Literally, it can be translated, you shall by no means wash my feet. No, never. Peter's adamant. I will never let you touch my feet. And I think we do this in so many ways. Instead of letting Jesus love us and expose us to our dirtiness. And then, wash our feet, what we go is we go, no, Jesus, I'll be better next time. <laughs> right? and, and really the only way to love is to, 
I really think daily, daily let the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us wash my feet. What does that mean and how do we do that? I think one way we do that is, is we, we never think that we will go lower than Jesus. I think sometimes when, when we come to a place of admitting our sin, we're like, okay, I've got it. I'll take it from here. Now I'll, I'm just going to serve you, God. But, but what God does is persistently serves us through grace and mercy, cleansing us, washing us. Because Jesus says here, what he says is profound. He goes, Peter, I don't need to wash your whole body. You've already been washed. And, and I, I think Jesus is saying that to so many of you. Like, you've been washed. You're clean. That doesn't mean you don't screw up. Right? Like, get rid of your swagger. Right? Like, one of the things that came out in this study that broke my heart the most is that people were just saying, like, I just don't feel like Christians are honest sometimes. Like, they aren't honest with how, how like, much improvement they need. <laughs> Tell you what, like we should be the first to go, like, I need help. <laughs> and I need Jesus to wash my feet. I started by reading three words to you guys, and and what I want to propose is three different words at the very end, and how we might be able to get to those. These three words are are given to us by by Paul in First Corinthians thirteen. And he says, uh, These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What would it look like? What would it look like to be a church that when people saw us, they thought about these words? I think that would be a church that let Jesus wash our feet. Yeah, we're going to be a church that would serve love courageously, be faithful. But man, you know, I hear churches sometimes go like, we are so good at welcoming people. Like, we just rock at that. Like, we do so much good stuff in the community. You got to check us out, right? Like, like let's not be those people. Like, what would, you know what that is? That's swagger. Get rid of that. Like, well, what would it look like to be known simply because you've put your faith in the Son of God who loves you, gave himself for you and you're anchored in that identity and so then you can identify with others like Jesus. What if you were so filled with hope knowing that the future will have really hard things but the Jesus who has seen you through will see you through. I know, it says in Galatians, I know whom I have believed in. I am faithful that he will keep what I've entrusted to him. That's hope, right? And we're people who love which means that we aren't known as the people who are like, here's the line with me or against me. But the fact is we are all, we have all actively set ourselves against Jesus and he's loved us. We were Peter's. No, don't wash my feet. Jesus is like, I got to. <laughs> you don't get it. Like, I got to wash your feet. So my challenge to you guys is this. I, I want you, and, and this is all I'm asking of you this week, or today even, spend five minutes 10 minutes, 15 minutes in a quiet spot meditating. Put yourself here at that table with Jesus, so distracted, thinking about how the gravy's too thick or whatever you do at Thanksgiving. And, 
And when Jesus comes to you, letting him look in your eyes, because Jesus knows you, and with him just knowing you, I want you to look at him and say, I need you to wash my feet, yes. What would that feel like to say, yes, Jesus, wash my feet? I challenge you guys with that this week. Let's worship him together. Oh God, we we don't always know what to do confronted by your humility that you went lower than us so that we can be lifted up with you. You identified with us that we can identify with you. God, I pray that this week there will just be a washing of feet. (laughs) So many of us will find dirty parts of us just washed by Jesus as we simply find ourselves saying yes. And that then going out, we won't go out with the swagger or trying to just like prove ourselves, but we will go out just knowing that we're clean and that we can love, not trying to prove ourselves. We can love other people who are dirty because we, we get dirty so often, but you're so kind and loving to forgive us our sins, to purify us from all unrighteousness so that we can respond in love to you. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.